0: This episode is brought to you by the generous support of LawPay, a Texas member benefit provider. Getting paid just got a lot easier. Check them out at lawpay.com. That's lawpay.com for more details. And now onto the show. So welcome everybody to the State Bar of Texas podcast. We are recording from the 2022 annual meeting in Houston, Texas. This is your host, Rocky Deer. Joining me now, we have Tony Campiti and Lawrence Morales. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy Thanks. to be here. Yeah, Great abs- to be here. Absolutely. So first, let's let's learn a little bit about, about you guys. So, Lawrence, let's maybe start with you. Sure. Tell us tell us what you do and where you do it.
1: Yeah, I'm a labor and employment lawyer based out of San Antonio, Texas. Uh, although I represent both sides of cases, generally I represent employees uh, that want to bring cl- uh, cases against their employers. So that's what keeps me busy every day.
0: And you're you're pointing at Tony when you say they want to bring cases against their employers. So I'm starting to guess. Maybe we kind of know what Tony does. Tony, why don't you tell us a little bit about what yep, you do.
2: You guessed it right. Uh, I'm a labor and employment lawyer as well, but I'm on the management side and been practicing this area of the law for 25 plus years now. But I'm a partner at a firm called Holland and Knight and oh, my yeah. office is in Dallas, Texas. We, uh, Just for the record, we, uh, I practiced law at Thompson and Knight for uh, a very long time and then we merged with Holland and Knight last year. So we're now known as Holland and Knight. Awesome. Well, guys, thank you
0: both for being here. So, you guys were both, even though you're on opposite sides of the docket. Sometimes you guys were presenting together right. today. It was a, it was a presentation. The newest new things in employment law.
1: Did I get that right? That's right. A little complicated, hard to say. But uh, yeah, visiting with the uh, business and corporate counsel section, uh, talking about recent developments of the law. The last 2 years have actually been kind of an exciting time for labor and employment lawyers and employers. A lot has changed. Some years it's rather kind of quiet. Sure. The last 2 years have actually been quite impactful in terms of legislation and cases that have really affected how we do things. So yeah, stuff we've, has we've been had happening some game changers. And
0: it's been happening even
1: with COVID going on. Like it
0: didn't stop anything. We Large, still got... a lot of it is because of COVID. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, it sounds like we kind of need to maybe get into this. So, Tony, why don't you start us off? Tell us you know, what, what do you think in, in your view, especially from the management side, what do you think might be one of the biggest legal changes for Texas employers?
2: Well, one of the things that we started talking um, at our panel conference today was about COVID-19 hmm. and the dilemma that you're seeing play out in real time between employers who have a strong preference in many cases to have their employees return to the office. Yes. But on the other hand, you've got Uh, this phenomenon going on called the Great Resignation, right? where you have uh, an unprecedented number of employees that are resigning their employment. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last year, I'm sorry, last month alone, as I understand it, 4 million people resigned. Wow. 40% of the people who resigned cited more flexibility in their working arrangements as a significant factor in their decision. So uh, one of the things that we're looking at as far as legislation Mm -hmm. in Texas is from the employer standpoint, what do you want to do? How, what do you want to do to, to protect employers mm-hmm. that want to bring their employees back into the workplace? And so one of the statutes, new mm-hmm. statutes in Texas that was adopted in June of 2021 is a law called the Pandemic Liability Protection Act. Okay. And that basically provides protection for mm-hmm. employers and others um, against claims for personal injury, either disability sure. or death. That are premised on you basically exposed me to COVID, whether an employee mm-hmm. or, per, for example, a spouse of an employee. Sure. And basically what this law does is it provides liability protection in those instances unless um, there are some exceptions that you can still be held liable. But basically, you've got to knowingly fail to remediate a problem or you've okay. got to knowingly place someone in a situation that you know is likely to sure. result in an exposure to COVID-19 before you're going to be held liable.
0: Now, but now, were there actual were there actual lawsuits being brought on those lines where employees were suing employers and saying you exposed me to COVID and so you owe me? Like was this kind of a preventative
1: measure by the legislature or was it in response to actual litigation? So, you know, one thing, you know, from the plaintiff's perspective, we, you know, we get about 50 calls a week from people who want to potentially bring a claim against their employer. Sure. And uh, during COVID, we got a lot of these calls about, listen, I don't want to go back to work. I'm afraid that I'm gonna get COVID. They might have some medical condition that would make them particularly vulnerable to COVID. And, uh, you know, we kind of have to parse through them and determine whether some there's some legal claim. You know, one problem just on that issue is just proving where you got it, right? I mean, right. how can Causation. you prove that I got COVID at work versus at the supermarket or some sure. other place? So, you know, those cases have been tough. Um, you know, for first responders, it might be a little bit easier to kind of show if you're in the hospital and stuff and you're working with these folks, causation's a little bit easier. But um, but those cases have been hard to take. And, and frankly, um, the cases that we've looked at haven't really been looking at that issue. It's more been about uh, asking for an accommodation because you might have a disability. Maybe that accommodation is you, you want to work from home sure. or uh, some other accommodation that would kind of help you deal with a potential disability. That's what I think we've seen a little bit more often than um, I got COVID and I want to sue you because of some injury. Got it. So definitely reactive in the sense that those cases have been filed okay.
2: and, uh, and had been filed before the law was passed. The law is retroactive. Okay. Uh, in effect, so that's important to note. But um, in some sense, it's retroactive, but in some sure. sense, it's proactive too. Again, getting back to that situation where, in the state of Texas, the legislature clearly wants to uh, adopt a pro-employer stance to mm-hmm. help employers bring those workers back into the office. But then, does this d-
0: does this apply? Presumably, it only applies to COVID cases, and then does it apply forever? you know because there's there's talk that covid's going to be endemic now we're always going to have covid with us so is this a carve out for one specific illness an ailment
2: or you know is this are these protections going to end at some point they're they're in place for as long as governor Abbott has his um, covid uh pandemic uh disaster declaration in place okay yes. so once
0: the disaster declaration is lifted
2: then, then the liability protection goes away and then okay. you're then you're back to common law uh, common law liability potentially.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah, so Lawrence, let's let's turn to you real quick. From your from your perspective, what do you think is
1: one of the more significant pieces of legislation from the employee's standpoint? right there's a couple you know so after the me too movement and you know harvey weinstein and all of the kind of fallout related to high level celebrities kind of being on the hook for inappropriate conduct sure. there's a couple of laws that changed uh that help employees in that situation so one relates to amending the federal arbitration act so it used to be that employers would say okay employees you have to sign a document it says that if you bring any claim against the employer, it needs to be in private arbitration. And then also, you can't bring a case, a case as a collective action or a class action. And the law has just changed. I think it's uh, March 2nd of 2022. March 3rd, right? Oh, March 3rd. Yep. So basically says that now, if the employee chooses, they can bring that claim now in court as opposed to arbitration. And frankly, look, an arbitrator's a less favorable venue generally for employees. So now this gives um, our clients, employees, really the opportunity to get their day in court and uh, kind of shed light on an issue that's important to the community and also to them. And then in addition to that, it used to be under Texas law that you couldn't sue a company uh, uh, for sexual harassment if they had less than 15 employees. Now the law has changed. If you have any number of employees, now you can bring a claim not only against the employer for sexual harassment, but also against the individuals responsible, the supervisors. And as a result, it opens up a whole new class of potential employers uh, for potential sexual harassment liability. So those are two favorable legislative changes that we've seen that help employees. So now would those, presumably when you say the
0: individuals that are kind of in the line of, of supervision... Would those would those individuals, could, first of all, could that go all the way up to the CEO or is it the immediate supervisors? Question number one. And then question number two is, would the company then still be on the hook for paying the damages or are the
1: are these management employees now individually liable? Yeah, it's a good question. So taking the second one first. So sure. in this situation, uh, the company could be held responsible for the individual's conduct. But what's interesting is sometimes, especially with smaller employers, because now we're talking about 15 or you know 14 or less employees, sometimes the company may not have large enough assets to actually pay real sure. damages and liability. So this gives you know, em- employees the opportunity to pursue an executive or somebody else that might actually have the financial resources to pay a judgment. So I think it's possible that we they would have what we call joint and several liability, where actually both the company and the individuals responsible can be held you know, accountable for paying those damages. And in terms of kind of how high up the ladder, the, the statute has defined the term kind of rather broadly. So it's anybody that kind of acts in the interests of employee relation matters, I'm paraphrasing here, sure. but that could certainly be the harasser. That could be somebody that was aware of the harassment and failed to take immediate action to stop it. So it, it, it truly opens up a class of potential defendants that just did not exist before this was, it became effective September of 2021. Um, so it was a game changer from a sexual harassment standpoint.
2: Yeah, and it could be, it could be someone in, that's got a human resources hat on sure. for a small employer. It could be a member of management. Um, it could be someone who's supervising the management and the, and the human resources professionals, like a officer or a director or a CEO. Well, you know,
0: because it d- during this exchange, I can, I can, f-
2: from my vantage point, it sounds
0: like this piece of legislation was a big win for the potential employees who might be bringing suit. Now, Tony, from your perspective, if you're if you're representing, say, a small employer who right. is less than fifteen employees. What what advice do you give them on how they navigate the liability issues surrounding this particular type of, right. of sexual harassment claim?
2: So uh, many of our clients, even before this law was passed, if they're small employers, sure. meaning less than 15 employees, I mean, they want to do the right thing. Sure. So many of them already have in place policies that would prohibit sexual harassment in the workplace, and those policies are typically also going to have a avenue of complaint or a complaint procedure that is available to employees if they feel like that they've been harassed mm-hmm. or um, uh, mistreated because of their gender in, in the workplace. But certainly going forward, because of this new statute, as a small employer, if you don't have a policy in li- like that in place, if you're not training your employees on how to follow and enforce that policy you're exposing yourself not only individually, but your organization to liability. So you have to proceed as though if you're a larger employer in these circumstances and take the exact same steps, in my opinion. And the other thing that we haven't talked about is the liability standard under this statute actually hmm. we think is more favorable to but employees. But we, we both of
0: you? We agree on that. Oh really, yeah. okay, they're both agreeing. Yeah. <laughs> <This> is,
2: <laughs> it's a rare instance. It's, so typically if you're looking at uh, for example, harassment yeah. by a coworker. Sure. The standard, and I'm generalizing, but the standard is whether or not you knew or should have known of the harassment and failed to take proper medial action. Sure. Under this statute, proper medial action is not the standard. It's immediate action. Okay. And so that is a that is a higher level of expectation for compliance than, than what you have previously. And so from that perspective, I agree with Lawrence. It truly is a game changer. And, and I think you're going to see... Um, even in cases involving larger employers, uh, that that plaintiffs' lawyers are going to rely on that more favorable standard and argue that standard to the court to try to hold more employers liable. But then, what do you
0: define as as immediate action in these cases, right? Because that's that, that, that's going to be the summary judgment question. If I'm if I'm thinking like the employer. So right? I mean, keep
1: in mind you have you know. what 20 plus years of uh, case law defining what prompt remedial action is. Mm-hmm. So we know what that kind of means, but now we know that now prompt's not the standard, it's immediate. So I'm going to argue, okay, you know, it's got to be faster than that for sure, right? <laughs>
2: sure. Um, it's, not,
1: it's not, I'll get to it when I get to it. Hmm. That's, that's no longer
2: the standard. It never was, but it certainly is not now. But now no, I, I wonder though,
0: how do you, and this is from both perspectives, employee as well as employer, You know, there's this idea of taking remedial action, but there's presumably there's also got to be an investigation to make sure that harassment actually did take place. So is the investigation also part of that remedial action or is a remedial action simply fixing it once you've detected that there is a viable case for sexual harassment? You know, so at what point does that duty get triggered to start taking immediate
1: remedial action? I think it's part of a whole system. I also do some defense work, but you know, one of the first things an employer should do is take some steps to figure out what happened, right? And look, mm-hmm. it's not uncommon when you do that investigation, somebody says something happened and another person says it didn't happen, right? So you can have this conflict and you know it's essentially just a he said, she said. And in those circumstances, I think, you know, you still need to take some action. It could be counseling somebody, providing training, you know, really. I think the, what's going to be considered remedial action, sufficient remedial action, is going to depend on the severity of the alleged conduct. If somebody made some crude joke or something, okay, a counseling might be enough or you know, some kind of write-up. If it's alleged assault, then obviously it's going to require sure. more uh, you know, substantial remedial action. So it is very fact-specific, but I think the first step is to make a good-faith investigation to figure out what happened. Right, and, and from a defense perspective, that investigation is key.
2: And I think under this statute, it is going to be considered, although normally it's not considered the investigation in and of itself being remedial, it is going to be an action that that you're going to be expected to take immediately, because you have to, in many times, conduct the investigation to determine whether or not there's been a problem, and then if there is a problem, then you've got to take the remedial action. And the law typically expects, in terms of remedial action, what is the action that's necessary to make sure that there aren't going to be any further problems. If your investigation has identified a problem, what is it? And then what type of action as an employer do you need to take to make sure that it's not going to happen again? And that could be anywhere along the spectrum, as Lawrence mentioned, from counseling to training to suspension to termination of employment. But then what what happens if the investigation takes a while,
0: right? If you're... If it's if it's a fairly substantial set of allegations and it takes time to parse through and it's it's all verbal, so you have to you have to go and interview different employees and go back over email strings or whatever, it takes time. Does that inure to the detriment of the employer because now the clock is ticking and you're supposed to take immediate action?
1: I mean generally I think Tony would probably put somebody on administrative leave or both people on administrative leave paid administrative leaves to make sure that there's no kind of ongoing harassment or issues while the investigation's taking place. But I mean
2: that's right, and it depends on the nature of the complaint, what type of allegation it is, how serious it is, uh, whether the complaining party has asked for any sort of immediate
1: action right off the bat, such as a separation from the subject of the complaint. And I'd say one related issue, and this was also a seismic change, Rocky, is that uh, you know for a long time one question under the law was whether sexual orientation and transgender status was um, Covered by uh, the employment laws, sure. and uh, last year the United States Supreme Court issued an opinion saying that they are. So that's a seismic change that has really changed the landscape of not only sexual harassment law, but gender and sex discrimination law generally. Okay, so we are we are kind of reaching the end of our time together, but
0: before we close out, I wanted to kind of give each of you maybe a chance because we talked about two two statutes in particular that have that have kind of come down the pike. Is there is there anything else that you think? either employers or employees need to know about employment law in Texas and the changes so you know, Lawrence, let's start with you, and then Tony, we'll, we'll end with you.
1: Yeah, there's also been significant changes to an entirely different area of the law called wage and hour law. It relates okay. to the payment of minimum wage and overtime, and uh, although this might be more relevant to lawyers, but the way those cases are litigated is collective actions, the standards have materially changed. I mean, a complete divergence from what the law was previously. It makes it a little bit more difficult to get collective action, so uh, from my perspective, that's another key Difference that's happened in the last uh, in the last year. Yeah, and I
2: I would agree with that. That was a significant discussion that we had in our panel uh, this afternoon. And the case that Lawrence is referring to is a case called Swales versus KLLM Transport Services, and it truly is a game changer in terms of the the process that district courts are going to apply in order to determine whether or not to send out. Uh, to preliminarily certify a class and send out notice to uh, opt uh, to plaintiffs that are going to participate in the lawsuit. And currently, the Fifth Circuit, which is where we are today in Texas, it has jurisdiction in Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, um, this set of rules applies to district courts in those circuits. Outside of the Fifth Circuit, the former set of rules, which essentially the Fifth Mm -hmm. Circuit now disagrees with, applies. So it's really, uh, from a jurisdictional (laughs) standpoint, it is a circuit split. And so it wouldn't surprise me at some point to see the U.S. Supreme Court take that issue up uh, and decide what the proper standard is. And and another aspect of wage and hour law that we talked about is another case called Hewitt versus Helix Energy. Mm. And this is a case that involves the payment by an employer of a day rate. As opposed okay. to a weekly guaranteed salary, or an hourly wage, or a piece piece rate, for example, and um, the issue in these these cases are significant in the oil and gas industry because in that industry it's common to pay certain types of workers on a day rate. It's sure. industry it's industry practice, and so the Fifth Circuit in that case essentially found that paying a day rate will not satisfy um, the salary basis test necessary to satisfy uh, an overtime exemption, uh, actually multiple overtime exemptions, including the highly compensated exemption. The U.S. Supreme Court just recently granted cert on that case. So we're, Lawrence and and I are very interested as our clients in what the Supreme Court is going to do with that case. Well, it sounds like employment lawyers in Texas are going to be very, very busy. But
0: unfortunately, it does look like we've reached the end of our program. I want to thank our guests. I want to thank both of you guys for joining us today. So Lawrence, Tony, You guys have been rock stars. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very
2: much. Appreciate it.
0: Now, guys, if if our listeners have questions, they want to follow up, or if they
2: need to speak to a lawyer, what's the best way to reach you? So, Tony, let's start with you. Sure. uh, I think the easiest way to find me is on the internet. So you could go to our website, Holland and Knight. That's www.hklaw.com. And then uh, my email address is on there, as well as my telephone number. Okay, perfect. That's Tony Campiti. And Lawrence,
1: how about you? Yes, uh, you can find us on our website, themoralesfirm.com, and our phone number is 210 225
0: Well, perfect. And guys, that's all the time we have for this episode of the State Bar of Texas podcast, brought to you by LawPay. Thank you again, LawPay. We love you. Also, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or best yet, your favorite podcasting app. I'm Rocky Deer. Until next time, thank you for listening.